In Genesis chapter 29, Jacob has been working seven years for his uncle Laban, for the daughter, Laban's daughter's hand in marriage. He wants to marry Rachel, who he's in love with. And the morning after the wedding, he learns that Laban has offered him Leah, who's Rachel's older sister, instead of Rachel. And obviously, you can imagine Jacob being quite upset about this. And so he confronts Laban. He says, I'm using the JPS translation here. So he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I was in your service for Rachel. Why did you deceive me? Laban said, it is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the older. End quote. And so Laban proposes that Jacob work another seven years to marry Rachel. And Jacob agrees. And I think the reason that Laban's response is effective and the reason that Jacob has nothing to say is because what Laban is saying goes much deeper than just the custom of his town. A few chapters ago, Jacob deceived his own father, Isaac, to usurp the birthright and to steal the blessing that Isaac had intended to give to Jacob's older brother, Esau. And you can imagine that as weighing on someone's conscience. And when Laban says, in our place, in this place, we don't let the younger go go before the older, I think it's very clear that he's taking a jab at Jacob and what Jacob did in terms of usurping the place of his older brother. And I think Jacob understands that. And I think Jacob is able to see a kind of retribution, divine retribution. And so he accepts it. Chapter 37 in Genesis is one of the most dramatic chapters in the whole Bible. In this chapter, we learn that there is tremendous amount of jealousy among the children of Jacob. Jacob's favorite son seems to be Joseph. And Jacob makes a a tunic for Joseph, a special tunic, and the brothers are very jealous, and they decide they want to kill him. Reuben, who's the oldest of Jacob's sons, wants to save Joseph, so he suggests that instead of killing him, they just throw him into a pit. Meanwhile, they go to eat some food, and they see some merchants, some Ishmaelite merchants, and Judah suggests that instead of killing the brother, they can just sell him to the Ishmaelites. At verse 28, the brothers are not with Joseph. We learned three verses ago that they left Joseph in the pit, that they went to eat food. We learned that Judah proposes this idea of selling him to the Ishmaelites. And then we get to verse 28. When Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph up out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph to Egypt, end quote. So it certainly sounds from a close reading of the text that the brothers weren't actually the ones who sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites. They intended to. First, they intended to kill him. Then they intended to sell him. But they didn't actually succeed. The next verse, quote, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he rent his clothes. Returning to his brothers, he said, The boy is gone. Now what am I to do? End quote. 
So what's, what's pretty clear, just following the timeline, is that all the brothers are together. Reuben had this plan of saving him from the pit. So while the brothers are still eating, he's going to sneak off on his own to rescue Joseph. Joseph isn't there because he's been sold by Midianites. And he comes back and he is totally distraught. And not only is he totally distraught, it seems like he even tells the brothers that he's distraught. He now makes, he now reveals, it seems, that he was intending to save Joseph, that he was not willing to go along with their plan to kill him or to sell him. And, and what emerges from this is that from the brothers' perspective, they know that they're guilty. They know that they intended to murder their brother or to sell their brother. But at the same time, they don't know what happened to him. From their perspective, their brother just disappeared. And you can imagine a real painful lack of closure in that. There's something very mysterious from their perspective that happened. Now the brothers need to decide what to do. They, they feel that they can't admit to their father what role they've played in this disaster because that would basically be admitting to an intention to kill their brother. Verse 31, quote, Then they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a kid, and dipped the tunic in the blood. They had the ornamented tunic taken to their father. And they said, We found this. Please examine it. Is it your son's tunic or not? He recognized it and said, My son's tunic, a savage beast, devoured him. Joseph was torn by a beast. Jacob rent his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and observed mourning for his son many days. All his sons and daughters sought to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, saying, No, I will go down mourning to my son in Sheol. Thus his father bewailed him. When they bring the tunic dipped in blood to their father, the languages, Vayomru, they say, Zot Matsanu, this we found. Haker na. Two words. Haker na means recognize, please. Haktonet bin chahi imlo. Is this your son's tunic or not? The next chapter is chapter 38. It's one of the strangest and most seemingly incomprehensible non sequitur chapters in the book of Genesis. It describes this story of Judah and his family. And it covers a bunch of years as he tries to build a family. He has a few children. He has three children. His first two children are married off to a woman named Tamar, and his first two children die successively after being married off to Tamar, and he doesn't want to give his third son to Tamar. That's the story. Then Tamar deceives Judah. She dresses up as a harlot and sleeps with him, and then Judah wants Tamar to be killed because he sees now that she's pregnant. And Tamar says, no, it was, I can prove that you're the person they slept with. And Judah then goes back on his uh, desire for vengeance against her. That's the story. Interjects right in the middle, right in the most dramatic moment of this Joseph story, of Joseph being sold into slavery. Chapter 39 starts, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. Joseph is brought down to Egypt. Chapter 38 starts, and Judah, and Judah goes down from his brothers. So the language there is very parallel. All of Genesis, from beginning to end, is permeated with this very strong anxiety over secession, over inheritance, over who is going to be the heir 
of this divine covenant that we're dealing with, this divine relationship that we're dealing with, and also an heir to a kind of patriarchal structure of wealth and leadership of this clan, this sort of nomadic clan that the book of Genesis follows. And so we have that in the relationship between uh, Isaac and Ishmael. We have that in the relationship between Jacob and Esau. We certainly have that in the relationship between Jacob's children. And now we get it in Judah's children. This anxiety over secession, who is going to be Judah's heir, is basically the central question in this chapter. If we look at the Joseph story, there are a bunch of siblings. Jacob has a total of 12 children, but not all of them play the same role on screen. Not all of them have the same amount of screen time, so to speak. Joseph is obviously sold as a slave. Simeon and Benjamin are also uh, eventually going to be incarcerated by Joseph much later on in the story. But only two brothers play an active role, sort of a causal role in the story, a persuasive role as people who are guiding this narrative. And those two brothers are Reuben and Judah. And as we said earlier, Reuben tried to save Joseph and failed, and then he was distraught when he realized that Joseph was gone. And then Judah, it was his idea to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Much later on in the story, we're going to get to a place where Joseph becomes viceroy of Egypt, and there's a famine in the land of Canaan, and the brothers are trying to convince their father to let them take Benjamin down to Egypt, because that's a precondition for Joseph to give the brothers food. And Reuben's going to try to convince his father, and he's going to fail. Reuben seems to lack the sort of persuasion, persuasion skills, the oratory skills. Judah, on the other hand, is always much more articulate, much more compelling, and he ultimately convinces Jacob to let them take Benjamin. And then when the brothers bring Benjamin down into Egypt and they are dealing with this viceroy who they don't know is their brother Joseph, and then Joseph wants uh, Benjamin to be kept in Egypt because they found a goblet in Benjamin's sack, it's eventually Judah who tells the story, the story of their missing brother to Joseph. Of course, he's telling the story of Joseph to Joseph. And he does it in such a way that eventually Joseph breaks down crying and he reveals himself to his brothers. And with that in mind, the idea of taking a parenthesis, of taking a break, of making a footnote where we follow Judah for a bit makes some sense. He is a, a central, central character in the story. Judah, who bereaved his father, Jacob, who is practically responsible for the death of Jacob's son, is going to be bereaved in this story. He's going to see the death of his own sons. I think it's safe to assume that Judah, who was the mastermind behind selling Joseph in the first place, was also probably the brother who brought the tunic dipped in a goat's blood to his father and said, Hakerna, recognize, pray, recognize, please, is this your son's tunic? In the story of Judah and Tamar, Tamar deceives Judah. Tamar dresses up as a harlot, covering her face, seducing Judah into sleeping with her. 
and Tamar receives payment from Judah in the form of goats, paralleling the goat blood, the goat's blood from the previous chapter. And moreover, chapter 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. In fact, she is with child by harlotry. Bring her out, said Judah, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I am with child by the man to whom these belong. And she added, Examine these, whose seal and cord and staff are these. The Hebrew, Vatomer, Hakerna, she says, recognize, please. The language that she uses to Judah, Hakerna, is exactly the same language that Judah used to his father, to deceive his father. For Judah, for the brothers, I imagine that Joseph is like this ghost. He like disappeared from the pit and they don't know what happened to him. And they're living with this guilt. Joseph just lives as this like haunting figure. And then that those two words, Hakerna, comes right back at him and slaps him in the face. And so I think the effect of those words is not different from the effect that Laban's words had to Jacob when Laban said, in this place, we let the oldest go before the youngest. There's a sudden awareness that the hand of fate or that divine justice or poetic justice is playing out here. That there's, this is a moment of expiation. This is a moment of reckoning. After Tamar reveals these signs to Judah and says, recognize, pray, Verse 26, quote, Judah recognized them and said, She is more in the right than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And I think this is a critical moment in the character arc of Judah. I think this chapter is an example of the kind of divine and poetic justice that is very common in the book of Genesis. And a sense of expiation that plays out throughout the book.